All right. <coughs> I said, following what Sam said, because he was dealing with Abraham and God did test Abraham, I said, the scripture that comes to mind is from Proverbs twice. The crucible for silver, which is the heat to melt it to get all the dross out. The furnace for gold, but God tests the heart. Then I said, it is repeated again in Proverbs, but the ending is different. The crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but praise test the man. And that is one of the hardest things to handle in your life. Because pride is an element we all have to deal with. I did it. And God does not get the glory. So it's an element we have to watch with greatest care. Now, <coughs> all right, it's up on the screen. I want to take you on from where we were. We are in <coughs> Exodus chapter 12. So if you take your Bibles, we're going to read a section out of Exodus 12 to lay the basis for what we want to look at this morning. Exodus 12 from verse 1. Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, and again this commences a separate section from what has gone before, and Aaron in Egypt. This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year, so timing is set. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month each man is to take a lamb for his family one for each household. So the event lies ahead, but the directions are given before the event takes place. It's prophetic. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. So everyone is provided for. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Every animal that was offered in sacrifice dictated by God had to be perfect because Christ had no sin. Take care of them until the 14th day. That is, you examine them. You make sure. And by the 14th day you know that lamb is without blemish. Because if you'll trace the life of Christ when he rode into that Jerusalem on that donkey, he was examined and examined and examined and proven to be faultless right up to the time of Passover till Pilate could say, I find no fault in the man. So we come to this here and we're down in verse 7. No, six. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the side posts and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So that at the entrance, there's the blood. The whole focus 
is on the issue of the blood. Leave that out of your message, and it's not the gospel. The whole focus is on the blood because the blood of animals can never take away sin. It's only shadow. There was a reality. And you're only looking at shadow. When that blood goes onto the doorpost, it's only shadow. This whole thing is only shadow. If it's only shadow, how much greater is the real? This is only shadow. Now, I want to place you as a Jew in the land of Egypt because you are only looking at shadow and its consequences. You are not looking at the real. But if you will understand the real, the real is going to be much more than the shadow. Uh, there's two verses which were quoted this... No, you quoted Romans 5. <laughs> Beginning. Romans 5, verse 9 and 10. If you take it in your Bible, uh, this is the measure that we are given. So we understand shadow is one thing. Reality is another. It is immeasurable when it is compared to shadow. So take your Bible, turn to Romans 5, and we're going to read two verses where Paul uses this great truth to illuminate our understanding. We're in Romans 5, and we're down in verse 9. Since we have now... He's talking to believers. Since we have now been, present tense, justified by His blood, when you came to Christ on the call of the gospel, you heard the message and you believed and put your trust in him, you are now justified by the blood of Jesus. Since we are now justified by his blood, how much more, immeasurably, you cannot put a limit to it, how much more will you be saved from God's wrath through him? Immense words. You want to see God's wrath? Read your Bible. It's awful. Isn't it? Who can stand when once you are angry? No one. Thank God for grace, for mercy. So the Bible says, <coughs> you have been justified by his blood. How much more? Will you be saved from God's wrath through him? Do you stand today with absolute... You came to the Lord's table, all it meant to you, I am saved from God's wrath. God hates sin. With an intensity of hatred, we don't understand. He is holy. He cannot look on sin. He's of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, the Bible says. He cannot look on sin. So how are you going to go into his presence? How am I going to go into God's presence? Unless there's something that will make me, as you said, whiter than snow. Blindingly white. That's what it means. There's power in the blood. That's what you, we said you sing. That's the first one. Notice go on verse 10 in your text. Verse 10 says this. 
For if, when we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, if that's what his death did, how much more in an immeasurable amount you're going to be saved by his life. Notice the focus is on the blood and what it accomplished and his life and what the ability of his life in you and me is able to do. You say, what a salvation. It is immense. We have such a low view of God's dealings with us in grace. I didn't deserve it. I was under God's wrath by nature. And yet God in mercy brought the gospel to me and to you if you're sitting here believing today and in his kingdom. The reason you're there is you heard a message of God and about his grace and love for you and me. That's what you heard, and you responded to what you heard. And you've passed from darkness into light, from the power of the evil one into the kingdom of his dear son. True, you carried your body with you. True, you've got a sinful nature. True, you'll have battles. But greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So we come to an immensity of salvation, and we're going to look at the shadow so we understand the reality. So to do that, this is what I, you know, I've had to think a lot through this because before I came here, I was determined to teach on the feasts. So I thought, I'm a Jew. Today, you're a Jew. And you're going to back, go back 3,500 years in time and you're in slavery. And for 400 years, you are in a land not your own. You have no possessions. You have nothing. You're a slave in another land. And in the 400 years, you, the intensity of suffering you are going through has driven you to despair. There is no deliverer. You know the whip. You felt the lash, the sweat, the labor, and there's no way out. As a nation, every one of you, not one can help another and you're in slavery. And you're watching your newborn thrown into a river and perish and not allowed to live. You're watching hatred. You're in the midst of it. It's all around you, death and suffering and there is no release. There's no sign of release to take place and that's your condition and you glimpse the hand of God as you see judgment after judgment fall on the land enslaving you its leader starts to come under a power beyond himself he is introduced to it and what he wants you to put your trust in crumbles. All the gods of Egypt are under destruction. Till the tenth one comes, the main and the final one of Egypt, the firstborn. Because God had said, let Israel is my firstborn son. 
let him go. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And you have what we call a power encounter, which you will get on the mission field so often, between light and darkness. So you come to this place here and you're in the midst of a power encounter. Pharaoh is only a man. Behind that man is the prince of darkness. And he's out to enslave the people of God whom God has set his heart upon. It calls it five times in your Old Testament. Exodus once, in Deuteronomy three times and in Psalms once. Israel is my chosen treasure. Five times the number of grace, eh? He says, is out of all the nations, these are God's words, I have chosen you to be my peculiar possession, is the King James, my chosen treasure, is the NIV. That's why there's a treasure hidden in a field when Jesus tells the parable. That treasure is Israel. I won't take you through the parable, you'll have to think it through. It's a very rich parable. One, one verse, it contains the whole history of Israel up to the point of Christ's coming. One verse. The whole history of Israel is in one verse. So you have the understanding, let my people go, was God's direction. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't let them go. Why did God allow all this to happen. Why did God let all this take place in the life of one people, one nation on earth? As we go through this morning, depending how far we get, this revelation, I trust, brings to our understanding the riches, what it says in the New Testament. He has been given a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're stepping into an amazing shadow and it's only a shadow. But remember this morning you're a Jew. Right? You've got no hope. You're lashed, you're serving, and there's no way out. You're locked into a pathway that heads into despair and death. That's the path you're on, and you know it. Israel knew it. There's no way out. There's a time in each of our lives when you're sitting here, and you can look back. And if you're a Christian here, there's a time you can look back, and there was no way out. We were in darkness. We are encaptivated by the prince of this world. And into that darkness, God shone the glorious gospel of his Son. Into your darkness came the light of truth. To unveil to you, there was a deceiver and he was controlling you by his lies. So Israel is locked into slavery with one purpose. You cannot save yourself. I never forgot when I was reading through Job and you get to the end of the book of Job 
God said to Job, and being creation ministries, we use chapter 40 to illustrate dinosaurs, all right? From chapter 40, verse 15, it's a dinosaur description, a scientific description of the dinosaur in the Bible, all right? Because God says, look at behemoth. Behemoth is Hebrew, and you can substitute, if you like, in your Bible, dinosaur. Don't substitute your footnotes, which says hippopotamus or crocodile for Leviathan, hippopotamus or elephant. It doesn't fit the description at all. It is a description of a dinosaur. So God says to Job, Look, behold, behemoth, I made him when I made you. So you've got a dinosaur and Job's looking at it and this is after the flood. All right? So there were dinosaurs in the ark, dinosaurs came out of the ark and dinosaurs multiplied on the earth after the flood. They may have become extinct. There's still a big question mark over it. All right? Well, what's the circumstance? God says to Job, Tell me, Job, have you got an arm like God? How powerful are you? Can you pull down the proud when they walk in their arrogancy? Can you do that, Job? Job never answers. We can't. Job couldn't. He said, if you can do it, I will admit to you, you can save yourself. And this is a man, there's no like of him in all the world. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. And yet to this man, whose character, when you read his character, it's impeccable. What he did with orphans, what he did with the poor, how he treated his family, everything about that man, when you read his character, we don't measure to. And yet God is dealing with this man and he's telling him, how strong are you, Job? You haven't got any strength in this matter of saving yourself. I will admit to you, you can save yourself if you can clothe yourself with glory and majesty. You can't. I'm sorry, you lost it in the Garden of Eden. The covering went and we do not have the glory of God. Romans says, all have sinned. Consequent, come short of the glory of God. We've lost it. Will you get it back? Yes, you will. If you're a believer, it will come back. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15 tells us we will partake in the glory of Christ. A glorified body will finally be ours. But he admits, he challenges Job on the whole issue. So when we come to this shadow and it's only shadow, what are we seeing? You're seeing your life, my life. I look back. You don't know my life. You don't know my heart. You don't know my thoughts. You carry your whole past on your conscience. You say, but I'm a forgetful and my old man mind is going and I've nearly got dementia. <laughs> My wife won't accept that one. <laughs> Happens to old people. True? I have listened to godly men who've got to the point where the mind is gone. Right? Even to old age, my promise is he'll hold you up. He doesn't depart. He's there. Even when the mind goes like that, 
But when it comes to these things, it's God who has to unveil to us who he really is. And he says to Israel, when I do this, you will know I am the Lord. And further on the next chapter in Exodus, he says, when they see it, Egypt, they will know I am the Lord. Now, why does he do it? Take your Bible, turn to Romans 9, verse 17. This is why the Passover took place. Romans 9, verse 17. <coughs> Why did, look in your verse. I'll, you're my students, I'm the teacher, I have a question. <laughs> in your verse, Romans 9, verse 17, God has dealings with a man who would have been the greatest power in the world of that time. He's the head of Egypt. And he gives the reason that man is where he is and in the position he is. Who is the man in your verse? Pharaoh. What did God do to this man according to your verse? He raised him up. God raised him up. This man is powerful. He's head of Egypt which was the most powerful of all the nations of the world. History is seen in when people go to Egypt and look at what's there, left over from its time of glory. So here is this man raised up. For this cause I raised you up. Why does God give the... What is the reason God gives for raising up this man in the world as the most prominent man in the whole world. And remember this when you see leaders rise and fall. You may vote them in, but God has the dictates finally, the throne controls. Why did God raise him up? According to your verse. Did he show his power? How did God show his power? You know your Old Testament. Even if you've never read your Bible much, you've had films, movies on the Ten Commandments, on all kinds of things, just to give bits here and there of understanding of something that went on in the history of our world. Why did God raise him? To make his, show his power. How did God show his power? The Bible tells us he judged the gods of Egypt. One by one, he showed he was Lord of all. Till you come to the final judgment. And the effect of that final judgment is given to you in your verse. Please note the last part of your verse, Romans 9, verse 17. What is the last part of that verse telling you about God? It's his name that is going to be known throughout the whole world. This is shadow. There is a reality. Tell me, if this is only shadow and this is what he did in Egypt, what about the cross? How much more? 
how much more the immensity of what God did at the cross is immeasurable for our human understanding. It's the love of God. It says, Paul, praise, praise for the Ephesians that you may know the height, the depth, the width, the love of God. It passes understanding. It passes knowledge. It can only come by revelation to understand the immensity of God's heart and the way he's exposed himself to the world. In the weakest of expressions, the cross. In the most vile and despised of actions, a criminal condemned to death God is bringing the world back to himself. Talk about a message. Paul grasped it. It was for the world. God was in Christ. He was reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. He's committed to us this word of reconciliation. We need, I think, again, to be moved by the immensity of what God has done for us in Christ and realise it's not just for us. It is a message of reconciliation to the world. The world does not like God. The world is antagonistic. As someone said, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither can it be. There is an enmity, a battle going on and we are in the midst of it. But the immensity of the gospel, can we grasp its extent? That means me? I'm in right relationships with God. There's no more wrath and God is going to deliver me by his very life lived out in me, his life. And you can't touch Christ's life Death cannot hold him, can't touch him. Tell me, have you passed from death to life? If you've received the gospel and you've accepted Christ, your position before God, I don't care what anyone else thinks about you, justification is in the eyes of God. <coughs> By the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But when faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to you, God declares you righteous. God declares you. Not man. God makes a declaration in heaven. He is mine. He is just. What about all he did? What about this man who stood there had the clothes at his feet, justifying the death of Stephen and watched as he stoned to death, giving accent, assent to the what is taking place. What about the man? And the Bible goes on, breathing out threatenings of slaughter. He was given letters to go to Damascus. Other places he'd already been. And he's delivering men and women into prison. He's devastating the body of Christ on earth. 
that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth a pattern of all long-suffering, he said. I did it ignorantly in unbelief, but when he saw the light, and he saw it powerfully, by the way, he saw it powerfully, when that came to his heart, there was a total change around of direction. That is only a sample of what God can do in a man. He set me forth as an example. God's mercy, God's justice in his dealings, his ways are demonstrated in a man who so hated the body of Christ, he devastated it. And he, he said later on, I had their clothes at my feet. He remembered. He watched the stones go. And I think that's what he meant when he said, Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. How was this man's face like an angel? Why did I hear the words, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge? Why did he say the words, I see Jesus? And his face shining like an angel. You can't get away from some things in your life. You read the Fox's Book of Martyrs and the testimony of those martyrs resulted time after time in the salvation of the very captors who were killing them. Paul is only an example taken at the beginning of the church which has been recorded in history since. And we come to this shadow. It's all it is. Tell me, is it worth following Jesus? There's testimony after testimony in our Bible, let alone what we can read in people's lives today, that it's worthwhile putting your trust in Christ, whatever the cost. And we may have to yet face the cost of a decision of life and death for ourselves, literally. Antagonism is building, in case you didn't know. That's the world we're living in. So we are looking at a shadow. What is God doing in this shadow? And I have listed there some of the things of the details that went into this Passover that Israel experienced in the land of Egypt. And every one of those details is only shadow. Every one of those details is only shadow except the timing. The timing is exact and will one day be an exact time and it was. He died at Passover, didn't he? And so we understand there is an immensity in what we see here and there are details given to us all the way through and we are given rules and regulations when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 5, which was quoted this morning, the feast, why do you think he wrote, Christ, our Passover, has been, past tense, sacrificed for us? Paul, how can you say that dogmatically? What is the evidence that you can say dogmatically, written into the Bible, for generations to read, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. If there was not something that happened at that cross, 
that would justify him putting that into Scripture. What happened at that cross that Paul could write, Christ, our Passover. Tell me, is he your Passover? Can you argue Paul's case for yourself? How do you know he's your Passover? How do you know he's your Passover? Because Paul said dogmatic, Christ, our Passover. Our means he includes believers. What evidence are you going to present? Someone says, Christ, your Passover? How do you know? How can you say that emphatically? He is my Passover. What would you base it on? Give me your answer. I'm a heathen. I don't know anything about this. Come and you tell me. How can you say Christ is your Passover? How are you going to justify that? Every time from the time before it happened, God instituted a rule, a bone of this lamb that you roast in the fire. You must not break a bone. That's strange. If we didn't understand, it's prophetic. So you come to a Roman Empire ruling the world in control of everything and the soldiers are sent to where these three crosses are with one command from their commanding officer. You break their legs. Smash them. So the bones break, they drop, they can't breathe and they die because the next day is a special Sabbath. We can't leave the, the bodies there. So what happens? You know the story. What happened? The soldiers went. They went to the first man, the criminal on one side of him. He's dead, so they smashed his legs. They went to the other man hanging there. They smashed his legs. But they came to Christ. He's dead already. Now the command was, smash their legs. Roman Empire soldiers do not disobey. It's at the cost of their life if they do. He didn't break his legs. Talk about sovereign control over the affairs of what's happening on earth. Here is a Roman soldier who knows nothing of the Scriptures. He's Roman. He's not a Jew. So he takes his spear. Instead of smashing the legs he thrusts it up into the side. And John records in his message in John's Gospel, he said, immediately, instantly, there flowed out blood and water, that order, blood and water. I saw it. I bear record. My record is true. If that wasn't important, it would not be written like that. Why? What are you seeing when this happens? You are going right back to the Garden of Eden. You are looking at the first marriage on earth where there is no departing from father and mother because they didn't have any. So the institution of marriage for the rest of time from that point will never change. But Adam had no father and mother Eve had no father and mother, meaning the values are instituted now for the future, 
For this reason a man will leave his mother and father. But Adam had no mother and father to leave. Did he? Did Adam have a belly button? That's a question that's often asked, eh? No, he didn't. Your belly button joined you to your mother's womb. Isn't it true? Was Adam born like that? Did he come into the world like that? No. He was created by God out of the dust of the earth. But there was one problem. He was a man. He is created by God. But this man has no help meet suitable. A fit one to come alongside with him. There's no one. And God has brought to him all the birds of the air, all the creatures and the animals that he made. He brought them male and female, your Bible says to Adam. Adam named them, but they're all male and female. But for Adam, there is no help. So, what do you do? You ask God, well God, why didn't you use the dust of the earth to make Eve? Valid question. Because that's how he did it with all the rest of creation. If he didn't do it the way he did it with the rest of creation, the way he did it is very important. He could have made Eve out of the dust of the earth, couldn't he? No problems. But he didn't. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. This is the process of making the wife for this man think it through step by step. A deep sleep. He opened his side. He took out from within that open side material. He closed up the side, meaning he comes to life, he's now awake so he can see what's going on now because he says it later on. And from what he took out of the man's side, he proceeds to make the woman. And having completed the woman, he brings her to the man. Adam can see this all happening. This is now bone of my bone flesh of my flesh. She was taken out of man. She will be called woman. That's her origin. She was taken out of man. What are you seeing? The first union in marriage in the world, which was a shadow. It's only a shadow. The whole of the angelic world the whole of creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Romans 8 tells us that. The whole creation is groaning, travailing in pain together till now. It's waiting for an event. The sons of God, when he appears, this is Paul to Colossians, when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. So the whole of creation is waiting for a marriage. And God has planned this. A wife for his son. How did he make the woman? What he took out of the man, he made the woman. John said, when the spear went in, 
immediately there flowed out blood and water. He said, I saw it. I bear record. My record is true. So what is taking place? A shadow? Why blood and water? Why not? Because Adam had flesh and bone taken out of his side, didn't he? By the way, if you know at all, Carl Whelan was head of creation ministry, now retired, partly due to his health and other things. But Carl was involved in a tremendous accident as he came up from Adelaide to take over the work in Brisbane in the west of Queensland towards <coughs> past Alice Springs. And a big cattle train hit him head on. His daughter was sitting next to him. She had hardly a scratch. He was smashed to pieces. And there was a German, a tourist bus came up later behind. There was a German doctor on board. This is not against the Germans. But the German doctor on board went to the car, looked at him, came back to his wife and said, he's finished. He's gone. Finished. It just so happened that the jaws of death were in Alice Springs. And that means the thing that tears apart the car to get the body out. They brought them from Alice Springs. They got him out. It took five hours before a helicopter could pick him up and take him. Six months under reconstruction. In the process, he's a doctor. He's a medical doctor. In the process, he questioned the surgeon. He said, why is it then when you're reconstructing my face, you go to the same part of my body, open it out, and you do it there? He said, you're a doctor and you don't know. <laughs> the surgeon said, you're a doctor and you don't know. He said, there is a skin over the rib called peristeme. We cut it, we strip it away, we take the bone, we stitch it back, we put it back together again because it regrows. So Adam did not have a rib missing. <laughs> Interesting. Because my wife was in hospital once listening to the conversation over the other side, eh? we having one of our, she was having one of our children, listening. How do you know it's a boy? Got a rib missing. That was the conversation. How do you know it's a boy? Got a rib missing. Where'd they get that from? Well, they looked in the Bible and thought Adam didn't have a rib, so he's a boy because he's got a rib missing. All right? So what happened really? How did God make the woman? Two things, blood and water. The tabernacle is only a shadow. The temple is only shadow. But the order never changed. The altar of whole burnt offering is where the blood is shed and sprinkled down before the offering is consumed. That is wood overlaid with bronze. It's judgment. And it's burnt, consumed in the fire. The knife does the work first. The body is dismembered in the way God said it should be with the fat portions laid on top and the whole lot is consumed by fire. God's justice must be satisfied. Sin has been committed. It's only a substitute, it's only a, cla it's only a shadow. That's all you're seeing. Is there a reality? 
And God smells a sweet smell. We are told every time that takes place in Israel, he smelled a sweet smell. And it stinks, by the way, in case you, I live on a farm, we slaughter. When you kill, we burn up the carcass and all that goes with it, it stinks. God says, I smell a sweet smell. He is satisfied because the fat portions come from right within next to the backbone, the kidneys. Where does God look? On the out? No. Remember what he said to Samuel? I don't look on the outside. I look on the heart. And in only one personage has he ever seen perfection. And that personage, a spear was driven into his side on the cross and blood and water flowed out. He purchased the church with his own blood. Paul's parting words to the elder Ephesians, Ephesians of elder, he says, feed the flock of God. He purchased it. And the King James, he purchased the church with his own blood. So what are you? You're a purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Not to yourself, to him. You owe it all to him. I owe it all. The church owes its origin to Christ. What about the water? The manner of entry right into God's presence. You first pass the blood, the altar of burnt offering. You next go to the laver of water. What do you do there? You look in. Why? Because it was made from the mirrors of the women. Polished bronze. So you look into that labor. What do you see? Yourself. And when you look in there, you know what you see? Dirt. It speaks to you. The water's there to wash away the dirt. He'll present to himself the church, a glorious church, without spot, wrinkle or any such thing, washed in the water of the word. Is God at work producing a wife for his son? Is the whole world looking forward to a marriage? They don't even know a marriage is coming. Sometimes I wonder if we as a church know the marriage is coming. Because God says, I have espoused you to one husband. I want to present you a pure virgin to Christ, unadulterated by the ways of the world, faithful to him. How will he do it? your seven letters of Paul, the apostle to the Gentile world, will work in your heart and in your life to wash away the dirt, to remove it, to allow you to be white in his sight. He will present that church to himself, a glorious church. The word of God works effectually in those who believe. Tell me, how do you treat this precious book? Of all the books in the world, and you'll go to school and you'll read book after book after book, there is no book like this in the whole world. The whole history of our world is in that book. And as Christians, we cannot afford to be ignorant of God's word. Whatever I have learned in the past, and I've had to unlearn a lot because <laughs> I've been through university, and I think, still think there's a lot to give away there, a lot to wash away. <laughs> Things just come at some times. 
And you'll have it in your life. And you'll have the Word of God washing you. And you need it. I need it. Why? Because God says, my thoughts aren't yours. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Tell me, how high are the heavens above the earth? You can send your spaceships out, that's only our, our galaxy, and they don't go far in that. And they put up their Hubble telescope, which I saw the pictures they're taking. You think immensity. How big are God's thoughts? I hardly know them. He says, my thoughts are not yours. My ways are not yours. What's he say? Let the wicked, I'm not wicked. Yes, you are if you're going your own way. Let the wicked forsake his way the unrighteous man his thoughts and turn to the Lord our God. He will abundantly pardon. And when he does, he will start to work in your life and mine so his thoughts will start to become my thoughts. So I will view this world in which I find myself not through man's eyes, not through the society and the pressure I am under all around me. I am going to view my world through the eyes of God and it'll cost you. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not a prosperity gospel, it's reality. If you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you and I are going to suffer persecution. Why? Because you're going to have to make decisions in line with the Word of God and the world will not agree with your decisions. It's as simple as that. I think one of the failures as I look back was to stand strong enough in the midst of a whole academic world. I felt its pressures. I felt its... But I look back now and I realise I could have stood much more strongly than I did. True, I did not have the understanding. I do have now but I could have, I realise. Part of the reason I was a bit worried about the consequences. The issue is, are you willing to face the consequences the world will hand you and one day hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. We're going home. The decisions are now. Make them in the light of God's word. What you see in scripture is a shadow. The reality is coming. Praise God for that. My time clock has told me. <laughs> I am finished. <laughs> when you come back this afternoon, what I want to cover is the immense issue the world is facing because God made himself a name in history when he brought Israel out of Egypt. God made himself a name at the cross which he wanted the world to know. But God has not changed and he's again going to reveal his name in power in the nation of Israel in the in the events of our world. It lies just ahead. God bless you. Thank you very much for the time we've been able to share together.